0: Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm Simon. Uh, and that's... that was Amy walking out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, the most astonishing thing is that, Hi, I'm JR. I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Simon. How often does that happen?
1: I, I don't know. You are Lee and Simon? <laughs> hey, listen, we've returned from Java.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been... Uh, well, last week you were supposed to be on, but you two got called away to an emergency. Indeedy doody. But we're back. And so, yeah, so actually it's the team. First time in five weeks. Hooray! Not by Whoa! choice, oh God, I but it. just because that's the way it happened. Mm-hmm. So those extra podcasts that we've had with other people, now we're back to the team. Yeah, yeah. How did they go? Be, were they good? Uh, they were all awful. We've lost <laughs> listeners. <laughs> There's been a lot of
2: people <laughs> saying they really like Matt West.
0: <clears throat> Who? Ah, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <Why? laughs> That's because actually on the podcast he sounds cuddly, whereas in real life he's really not.
3: Ooh. I've met him; he's a
0: very nice chap. Matt West, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you obviously. <laughs> met Unless him it's on another a bad Matt West. day. Yeah, I think it probably was. Uh, here's an email. Hi guys, Tristan Alfaro or Alfaro, Alfaro. I like it better. Here from Western Australia. G'day. Just. Oh, I resisted God, I doing that. Yes. Just wanted to drop a line to congratulate you on a consistently excellent podcast. I always enjoy... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why that deserves a laugh, Mr. barrett,
4: Because we've been missing the last few weeks, mainly.
0: Yes, and that's why it's been... Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tristan carries on and says, I always enjoy hearing your thoughts and opinions on all things Who. The latest podcast featuring Matt West from Milk was fantastic and made for great listening. I'm sure it's a fairly niche subject, but it is genuinely interesting to hear about the workings of the Doctor Who-oriented small press. The rise and fall of Hearst and the subsequent explosion in publishers has been fascinating to follow and has resulted in a great number of excellent books that we as a fandom are lucky to have. One thing I have found particularly appealing about the Blue Box podcast is that you're not willing to shy away from controversial topics, such as the controversy surrounding the publication of JNT, and openly being as critical of the series as much as you praise it. The And then he kind of blurs this, but I think what he's trying to say is, Eric, say what? (laughs) Episode was a great example of being able to deconstruct where the series began to go wrong, as well as being able to consider what parts were right. Although, to be honest, that was nothing to do with me and Mark. That was all down to Richard. (laughs) Anyway, he says, thanks again for producing easily the best Doctor Who podcast there is. Cheers. Tristan Alfaro. Uh, You've got to come to the microphone if you want to speak there, Lee. Yep, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Graham Boyd says, hey guys, just a quick thought. Bet the Christmas episode is called The Twelfth Day. Twelfth Doctor, 12 Days of Christmas. Just saying. Mm. Although I think it'll be called Twelfth Night. But I suggested then, that. Mm, I think a lot of people have, and I think it's pretty yeah, much odds-on, yeah, really. It's got to be. Uh,
3: it depends, I, th- I though, think cause... it should
0: be
1: called, um, was it Twelve Leapers Leaping? That'd be good, wouldn't
4: it? What? For his last episode? If it's his last episode. Indeed.
0: Oh. you I'm know not, I'm was... not
4: convinced. I'm not convinced. I think that's the big surprise for the
0: anniversary, but that's me. You think he's gone already? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I did, but then the other day we found out that Queen and Prince Philip were going to visit Matt Smith on the set of Doctor Who in the late summer. Yeah, yeah, whatever. He's just got a
3: little
1: snapshot, but he hasn't got any hair left, so he must have finished.
0: Paul McGann didn't have any hair when they finished his doc- when they uh, filmed his Doctor Who. No, what He I'm... did have a really bad wig, though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing to stop them putting a slightly better wig on Matt Smith.
3: Yeah, yeah,
4: why not? Well, you don't. Know, it doesn't happen very often, actually. The doctor, mind you, we're talking about John Pertwee tonight, aren't we? And there's various. Oh, you've different-
3: just
0: spoiled the surprise Whoa. for people who didn't read what the episode was called. Oh, such a big <laughs> surprise! Well, we're
4: talking.
1: The hairstyles. thing about is the
0: episode <laughs> called Big Bird. The thing about it is, at the end of the anniversary special, yes, it is it's called Big Bird. At the end Sweet. of the anniversary special, what if? Matt Smith and John Hurt merge into the same Doctor and Matt Smith takes on the personality and the haircut of John Hurt but stays with the face of Matt Smith.
3: That all sounds a bit odd.
0: Yeah, but then they can do the Christmas special with a buzz cut. Look, here's the point about (laughs) calling it the 12th day. The 11th hour was the first episode of the 11th Doctor, right? Uh, Yeah. So the first episode of the 12th Doctor should be the one with the 12 in the title, not the last episode of the 11th. Unless the last episode of the 11th also happens to be the proper full first episode of the 12th. And this is Stephen Moffat we're talking about, right? (laughs) He likes to keep things simple, doesn't he? Mm. He does. Oh, anyway, Graham Boyd has a PS. Anyone else think that the new Doctor had already shot scenes for the 50th? Now, here's an interesting point. He says they are still in all of his timeline, future included. Because at the end of The Name of the Doctor, of course... That last scene takes place inside the Doctor's timeline. Mm -hmm. And although we've only seen the past Doctors, of course, by the time the Doctor is buried at Trenzalore, or when I say buried, you know, Mm -hmm. his timelines are there. That includes the 12th and 13th and 14th and 15th and all whatever else. So, potentially, we could see future Doctors as well as past ones.
1: Hey, I've got it. I've got it. He's shaved his hair. They've shaved his hair so they can superimpose... Um, Christopher Ackerson's face on him So they can have the ninth doctor Brilliant
2: Well didn't uh, River Song say The last time she saw him He had a new suit and a new haircut There see,
1: there, see. Either that I they, think that
2: story's already ended Isn't it really Either
1: that was going to be Like an Alien 3 type plot, plot twist Where they've got to shave his hair Because he's got bugs in it Or something
2: Wasn't she talking about David Tennant then though I think she was talking about My doctor wasn't she Oh When she was talking to him But I don't know We'll
0: see <laughs> Yeah Anyway, mm. moving on. Yeah, no, not moving on, but, well, we've not, I've not had a chance to ask you three what you think of Matt Smith's departure. I think he's leaving at the right time.
4: I, I think he's leaving yeah. while he's still popular. Yeah, leave while it feels too early. Yeah. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's the Peter Davison effect, because I think, I think a lot of people, it, for whom Peter Davison was their doctor, thought, that was too early. I mean, haven't really had that situation since, have we? Apart from David Tennant feeling like he's leaving too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um,
1: well, this is this is what I was worried about with Matt that it would stay on a bit too long and it'll get a bit samey with him. But uh, I I've grown to really love his his Doctor and his acting, and especially the last couple of seasons have been amazing. He's just blown me out of the water. So I'm going to really really miss him. And whoever's coming that's got a hard act to follow. For sure, but I think he is going at the right time. I think it's a good choice.
0: Well, here's um, Gary Akers, e- Another email. He says, "JR." Oh, oh no, he's got two <laughs> emails here, and he starts the other one, guys, to redress the balance. He says, "JR, I'm absolutely gutted at the news of Smith's departure so soon after his own announcement that he'd be staying through 2014. Did he just change his mind on a dime, or was that earlier announcement just a huge mislead? Actually, yeah. to." Break into the email there, what Matt Smith said was, I'll be staying for the anniversary special, and then production will start on the Series 8 for 2014. He didn't actually say that he was going to be part of that production. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Gary says, Smith was by far my favourite new Doctor. Tennant slightly overstayed his welcome, but Smith is leaving at least a year too soon. I would have loved to have seen him under the next showrunner. He was awesome in the role, but too many times the script simply did not give him what he was capable of playing, saddling him too often with having to play the -the over-the-top, wacky madman with a box, and not enough material like the crying scene in The Name of the Doctor. Like Peter Davison, if the script quality would have matched the actor, Smith's tenure would have been truly mind-boggling. Unfortunately, Mm. it seems like the series these days subsists on quick tenures and constant regenerations. Give me the old days when everyone was shocked that Davison could leave after only three years, or even Tom Baker after, quote, only seven. Well, actually, that's not really strictly speaking true, because both Tennant and Smith have done four years, haven't they?
3: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: Which is longer than Hartnell, Troughton, McCoy, Colin Baker, Peter Davison... You, you know, know the production schedule for mm, the early
2: years, though, compared to what they do these I days.
0: It, it feels like
4: the production schedule but, flux the whole time, doesn't it, these days?
0: Conversely, you also have to look at the number of stories they get through in a season. Yeah. Matt Smith has totted up something like 35 or 40 stories, I think. I don't have figures in front of me, but mm-hmm. just on a rough guess. And Tennant must have had 35 or 40 as well. Uh, you know only one classic series Doctor made it past 40 stories and that was Tom Baker
2: mm. yeah bear in mind a lot of those were f- four and sometimes
0: six parters for one true story. true but nevertheless back then you know you basically did four days of rehearsals and one day in the studio mm-hmm. these days you're getting up at the crack of dawn doing night shoots you know bussing all around the country to film bits here there and everywhere it's an entirely different series mm. Yeah. So, you know, the the thirteen stories a year, say whatever that Matt Smith's been doing, is pretty equivalent to the you know ten stories a year that William Hartnell might have been doing. Even if William Hartnell was actually recording more screen time, less went into recording that amount of screen time.
4: What's that old nugget in it? That Eccleston interview where he was saying about why are you leaving after a year, and he said, "Well, if you, actually, if you think about it, I've I've done the equivalent of a two year stint." on the show.
0: Yeah, because you know, most series don't have nearly as many episodes as that. And those 45-minute episodes pack in as much as, you know, something that would be 60 minutes in another series to be mm. honest. Mm. And you know, most other series don't have anything like the kind of schedule that they have for moving around and filming bits here there and everywhere. Mm. Anyway, here's... uh, Oh, Gary again. He's an angry man. He says, (laughs) "'What I'm most saddened and ticked off about "'is that thanks to Moffat and the BBC, "'we lost a full series of Matt Smith episodes.'" I mean, well, anyway, here he goes. Because of Moffat's overcommitment to two big BBC franchises and lack of time to produce more Who, and the BBC's inability or unwillingness to maximize their biggest money maker, instead of a full series in 2012 and another in 2013, we got one series split over two years and drip-fed out as series 7A and series 7B. The lesser quality of the scripts this series indicates that Moffat was far more hands-off this series due to working on Sherlock. Well, that's not strictly speaking true, is it? Because he was working on Sherlock during the other two years as well.
2: Mm. Is Gary's email address Ian.Levine at Yahoo.co.uk?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure, but you know, if you know, if Series Seven, the fact that it's been spread across two years doesn't have anything to do with Sherlock, and probably has very little to do with Stephen Moffat. Is all to do with budget. Mm-hmm. Is to do with the BBC. Mm. If they'd wanted more episodes, they would merely have employed more writers to write more episodes. Yep. I mean, anyway, he carries on. Series 7B was filmed in 2012, which means that there are, unbelievably for the anniversary year, only two episodes being filmed in 2013. I have to break in again. They're filming the anniversary special now and the Christmas special towards the end of the summer and apparently they're coming back in the late autumn to start work on Series 8. So by the time we get to Christmas, they'll probably have filmed at least another two or three episodes.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, see, this is the trouble. When you read the forums and take the rumours and speculation being spouted by unhappy fans as facts, you end up misunderstanding what's really going on. Mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. Ah, he uh, carries on. Plus, it means that from January 2012 through to August 2014, when the next series is said to start, only 16 episodes will have aired in 32 months. Ah, I've got to break in again. Yeah, OK, that's (laughs) fair enough. But between autumn 2014 and Christmas 2014, when we might normally have expected zero episodes, we'll be getting 12 or 13. You know, you can mess around with the maths any way you like. What's happening is... Doctor Who doesn't have the budget that it used to have, but they still want to have it on every year. So what we're getting is three series spread across four years.
2: Mm. And a lot of series have like a 12 to 18 month break between one series to the next. So it's not that unusual to have a a bit
0: of a break.
3: Mm. Mm. In
0: fact... They're talking about Sherlock. There was 18 months between the first two series of Sherlock, mm-hmm. but it has since been 18 months since the second series of Sherlock, and it's at least another six months before it'll be on the telly. Mm. So that's at least a two-year break between series of Sherlock. I'll tell you what, you, if... should,
4: you should have a look at those Sherlock forums. Seriously, they're seething.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're probably very <laughs> upset about the amount of Doctor <laughs> Who that they're having to put up yeah, with between the series of Sherlock. It's
4: a stupid 50-year-old program called Doctor Who and we want some Sherlock.
0: Anyway, Gary carries on Smith is gone, there's nothing you can do about that But going forward, I'd like to see One, the BBC commit to a full series Every year And then answering these as Uh. we go along Well, you know If they commit to three series every four years That's better than no series Every year, which is what we had before
3: Yeah
0: And you know, in Russell T. Davis Last year, how many episodes were there? Four
3: Hmm.
0: Mm, yeah. So you know, it's oranges and lemons, really, isn't it, or whatever the uh, expression is? Yeah. Swings and roundabouts. You know, it's like I say. Uh, it's you know, you say to your kids, "Daddy, I want a laptop for Christmas." Yeah, well, we'll see what Father Christmas has in his stocking. It's
4: it's mm. it really is that situation, isn't it?
0: Uh, his second point is Moffat should be shown the door in favor of a producer who can commit completely to the show. Probably like Russell T. Davis, who didn't have anything to do with Torchwood or the Sarah Jane adventures while he was making Doctor Who. Uh, Number three, the return of some of the great Russell T. Davis writers like Rob Shearman, Paul Cornell, and Joe Ford. Now, Rob Shearman wrote one episode in the first series, has been Mm. invited back, and has never come. Paul Cornell wrote two stories, neither of which he actually wrote very much of, and Joe Ford. Does he mean Phil Ford? He must do. I think he must mean, yeah. Who has been writing for Stephen Moffat? He wrote the Adventure Games, mm, mm. and of course Phil Ford is, com- or has <laughs> been committed to the Sarah Jane Adventures and Wizards versus Aliens.
3: Yeah. So, you
0: know. Mm. Uh, point four: locking the main actor into a minimum of four series, not four years, four series. Now. That's all very well to say, but if you're picking up a young actor on the cusp of a very promising career, you're not going to be able to lock him down to four series. You negotiate these things as you go along, and you know they leave when the time is right for you and them. It's something that is mutually agreed by the actor and the production company. Which actually
4: harkens back to what Mm. we've been saying about Matt Smith, is the quality is right up to the cusp, isn't it? He's been getting better and better.
0: If he'd had done another year, after the anniversary, everybody would have said, well, you know, he should have gone on the anniversary.
4: Yeah. I mean, what, what, what does everyone say about J and T when he had to stay on as producer? He didn't want to be there. And look what we got. Hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I think... Well, yeah, that's... I mean, that's an opinion. I, yeah, that's an opinion, mm-hmm. I
4: know. But nobody wants to outstay their welcome. It's like when you decide to resign from a job... A lot of the time, the boss will say to you, well, I'll tell you what, if you're not happy, it's probably better that you leave now. Hmm. You know, um, because, you know, the, the potential's there for somebody not to work to their full extent. If they want to be somewhere else, there's absolutely no point. We, we're better off having two or three really great years of an actor who wants to be there. Just imagine if Christopher Eccleston yeah. held on for another year. Seriously. It, it, the moody old sod would have made it an absolute nightmare, wouldn't he?
0: He could have done. If they'd have tied him into it against his wishes... Yes, it would have been a nightmare. Mm. Um, and finally, point five from Gary. Uh, we should move out of the rut of the young doctor, young contemporary female companion. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon yes, either. Yes,
1: please. Yes, please. Bit of a change. Older man, well, a slightly dodgy looking older woman. I don't know. That'd be good. What, like
0: Donna Noble? That's okay. Yeah,
1: she's, she was
0: fine. <laughs> Bring her back. Okay. Yes, yeah, she's fine. When did they do these older companions during the classic series? Are you asking me? I'm asking anybody to oh, give well, me an example of well, an older companion.
1: Well, I suppose, uh, yeah, I suppose Barbara and Ian were slightly older than your normal, you know, they were kind of 30s, weren't they?
0: That, I think they were, were both under 30. Were they?
1: I think so. Young teachers. But it's still not teenage girl, is it? Well, Eve- Evelyn's the only example, well, and that's not yeah, even in the
4: TV uh, series, is it?
0: Oh, and you've got to remember that while Barbara and Ian were there, you also had Susan and then Vicky. You very much, very much were teenage girls. They were both supposed to be, you know, just adolescent, you know, 15, 16.
4: I I think they should have the two kids from uh, Nightmare and Silver all the time.
0: Do you want want a punch? (laughs) I think they should have kept the two kids from the Sarah Jane adventures.
4: Have the grandchildren from the uh, first Doctor comic strips.
0: Oh, yeah, that would be interesting. But it's not a rut of the young Doctor, young contemporary female. I think perhaps his problem is the fact that the companions are contemporary. Well, of course they are, because... Do you know how difficult it is to do a future or a past companion in a series that has to be as televisually sophisticated as Doctor Who is these days? It would be something that would be almost impossible to keep up. You know, the thing about Jamie is, in his first story, he was allowed to be completely contemporary to the time he was supposed to have come from. But as soon as they get Jamie into the TARDIS on his first trip, you forget about the fact that he's never seen a telephone, never used a pen. You know all these things. You just have to forget all that stuff. But and and you could do that back in 1966.
3: Yeah, you know
2: it's the
0: same with Zoe as well because
2: she's like super intelligent, but, at but time, only when she's it just suits. Thick as a
0: brick. And know? look at Victoria. Her very second story, <laughs> she's she's from you know. Early 1900s or late yeah. 1800s, very second story, she's in a miniskirt because that's mm-hmm. what girls wore in the 60s.
1: But do those, you know, two, do those stories run into each other straight away? Because we could assume that they've been on the TARDIS for a while and he's basically brought them up to date.
0: Well, not really, because like, however much time... My granny, it's like
1: teaching my granny to use an iPad. It only took
0: a few days. Not really, because if this girl has been brought up to think it's morally wrong to wear skirts above the ankle, she wouldn't change it just because she'd been told to. Oh... An enigma wrapped up in a skirt. Yeah, but you're missing the point, Lee. The point is that back in the 1960s, when television was less sophisticated, you could get away with things like that and nobody would really care. These days, if you did stuff like that, people would be all over it like a rash. So you have to do Contemporary Companions. You know, it's the only way you can get away with not spending all e- episode, every episode explaining about how the future companion or the past companion has to understand contemporary yeah, technology true, and stuff w- like that. I
1: know I know, Lila's from the future, but Leela was
0: like a savage, and
1: it worked, didn't it? It was quite interesting because they didn't just ignore it. They made an entire season about trying to teach her. I mean, Well, they made could, three stories about yeah,
0: yeah, trying to teach her, and then okay. they ignored it for another six. Well, maybe. I mean, she
1: still walked around in her leathers and had a knife in her hand and spoke in that way. But yeah, she. I mean, she did grow a bit. They could have done a bit more with it. But there's, you know, why not? Con- if you're going to tr- concentrate on companion stories, which a lot of these have been recently, what about having somebody from the future and and you know, uh, just taking them to the past and then saying, well, you know, we don't actually have these things here. but You can put your laser gun away. Um, I don't know. It might, it might be interesting to. Concentrate on the more
0: it would be a bit more involved than put your laser gun away. Well, you know, you'd what I have mean. to Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. You can't do it because it would have to be every single facet of every single episode translated between the modern and the future and the past. I'm sure a few lines could explain things. Yeah, but why go to all that trouble and potentially spoil an entire series worth when you could just have somebody who's contemporary, and that's the reason why most of the audience are watching anyway. It's only the fans make up like 1% of the viewing public. Everybody else is watching Doctor Who because they want to see how the girl from the council estate gets on travelling in time and space and meeting monsters.
1: It worked with Jack. He was from the 51st Century.
0: Yes, because Jack was the secondary companion. He was never the main companion. No, but he had a square laser gun.
1: Anyway, Moving I did, on. Yeah, I just wanted to say that because it's so cool. Can't they bring that back?
0: Uh, thanks for that, Lee. Oh, uh, they did.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Someone's going to have to write in and say bring back the square um, gun in because it's just, it was awesome. They used it once. What a waste of... No, they did bring it back. Did they? When? Yeah, silence of the library. Silence of the what? I did. In the what, library. Oh, good. Yes, you're right. You're right. They did. Yeah. So, yeah, more of that, please. More square laser guns.
0: I'll be happy. Forget John Hurt. <sighs> Anyway, Gary finishes off by saying, Oh, and seeing as how we can't trust Moffat or the BBC's statements at face value, and considering Matt's new buzz cut, I'll predict the regeneration will happen at the end of the 50th anniversary special, and that Matt's only appearance in the Christmas special will be an already filmed scene at the beginning, showing the replay conclusion of the regeneration. After all, that still qualifies as Smith appearing in the Christmas special, as Moffat and the BBC have said. And to be honest, I'd be happy with that. Mm,
3: yeah. Yep.
0: Although, like I say, I don't think it's going to happen that way now because of the announcement this week that the Queen and Prince Philip were going to visit Matt Smith on the set of Doctor Who. Mm, but he's still officer on duty, isn't he? I mean, yes, it's possible that he could always just turn up on set to say hello to them. But, you know, they, they, the, the, the point is they're coming... Uh, ostensibly, according to this news report, they're coming to see Matt Smith filming Doctor Who. So yes, it could be that they're not, but I think... Unless he's directing the first episode. I... I, yeah, you can mess around with the language and stuff any way you like, but I think the likelihood is from that story in the news that the, the chances are Matt Smith will be playing a full part in the uh, Christmas special. I'd be happily proved wrong. I don't especially want him to be in the Christmas special, actually. I'd rather the Christmas special was the introduction to the new Doctor and Matt Smith left at the anniversary. I think that makes the most sense. Mm, It'd be like the Christmas invasion, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, what better time to go out than in the anniversary special? But this is Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, so there are all kinds of permutations about what could actually happen.
4: Yeah,
2: yeah. Any, I wouldn't be really able
0: to wait and see. Did anyone catch Matt Smith's directorial debut? Um,
4: I saw a bit of it. It was very, very good, from what I saw. Can't think of what it was called. What was it? Um, it was it was like a short film that he did. Um, I'm gonna have to look it up. I'm gonna have to look it up properly in time for the next podcast. I'll sort out the details.
0: But um, oh, okay.
4: But yeah, he uh, directed this film. It's very good.
0: Uh, um, anyway, as I was in the middle of saying. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if the 12th Doctor played a full and active part in the anniversary special, if the regeneration came at the end of the anniversary special, and if the 11th Doctor played a full and active part in the Christmas special. So the 12th Doctor is throughout the whole of the 11th Doctor's last story, and the 11th Doctor is throughout the whole of the 12th Doctor's first story. It this ma- is Stephen Moffat. It makes sense, actually, you could do
1: that. I mean, the the initial idea that you had ages ago, J.R., was uh, to bring in the 12th Doctor um, surreptitiously, and you don't know who he is until the end of the episode, and there he is already there, so the audience is used to him kind of thing. right? But I think it was a rough idea. But... Um, you can do that with this time strip, uh, time strip, <laughs> that's not the word, time stream, kind of time eddy thing that the Doctor's now in with Clara. He could meet a future self quite easily. So yeah, the 12th Doctor could be in the 50th quite easily. And I, I Would either think...
2: actor want to do that though? Because you see a lot of the former Doctors and they all seem to say it's a, a not a very pleasant experience filming your last episode because you're kind of... Wanting to go, but not wanting to go, and it's your part, and then you're having to see some other guy play it. Do you know something? I bet it wouldn't work like that, would it?
1: It's not up to the actor, it's up to the producer and the writer to make that decision, surely.
0: And besides, it wouldn't work like that because what you're effectively saying is that the 12th Doctor, the actor who's playing the 12th Doctor, would consider his first episode after the regeneration as his first. So the episode he did before that would be kind of like him coming in early and doing a bit early. And conversely, you're saying that Matt Smith would come back after the regeneration, which he would consider his last episode, to do an extra episode. But if it was written like that, then the actor Matt Smith would consider his last episode to be the episode after The Regeneration, and the guy who's playing the 12th Doctor would consider his first episode to be the episode before The Regeneration, and both actors would quite happily be in two episodes with one another, making a proper handover in a way that Mm. no two Doctors have ever been able to do before, and I should think that would make for a happy time on set, because unlike with say, Tennant and Smith, where they literally came on set, shook hands, filmed half the scene each, and then disappeared and didn't see each other again for another three years. This way, you actually get to spend some screen time with the person who's taken over, and to me, that seems like a more friendly, a sort of more family way to do it. And I'd be definitely up for seeing that version. Yeah, that'd be great.
1: I mean, it's Moffat, for goodness sake. He'll do anything, won't he?
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're going to be disappointed now if it's not, aren't we? (laughs) I don't know, I just think if you're the new guy, you wouldn't want the old guy sort of hanging around and stealing Well, he's stealing not hanging around, is he? Because, you know, if it's written like this, it's not like, if it's written like this, it's not like there's an alternative and you're thinking, well, it should have been the other way. If it's written like this, this is what you paid to do and you don't think about, oh, it could have been another way. You only think about the pages that have been put in front of you. Hear, here. Anyway, we've got loads more emails to get through and um this one is from the Reverend Captain Hullo Porro. We always like his emails, don't we?
2: He's a very eccentric chap.
0: You only say that because he's slightly less eccentric than you and you're just trying to confuse people into thinking he's worse. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he says Bula podlings. So See what just I mean? <laughs> Just read JR's news on the Starburst page about the three possible front runners for the twelfth thirteenth Doctor. Obviously he's counting John Hurt there. Oh and speaking of which, have we already seen the twelfth Doctor? John Hurt? Well is he? Well, or is he the I can't see it. No, no. Well if he's the if he's the ninth doctor, then we have already seen the twelfth doctor and it's Matt Smith. No. (laughs) Anyway, um, uh, before an announcement, wanted to get a view on this thought. Domhnall Gleeson, no, it's not called Domhnall, is it? It's um, Donald. Donald Gleeson, Daniel Kaluuya and Dominic Cooper will all be in the Christmas special as Doctor-like characters. The episode will be based around the toys and games of Christmas past. The Barbie last seen in Cold War will return. The episode will be called Guess Who? And we won't find out till the end just which one is the new Doctor. What do you think of that idea? I mean obviously not those three names, but would well, that be an interesting way to do it? It sounds like dimensions in time with, to me. Love <laughs> a phone in at the end. Oh, I don't know. Just, uh, all that I've just said about the 12th Doctor being in the 11th Doctor's last episode. Mix that with the next Doctor and then making it a guessing game with three people saying they're the next Doctor yeah. and a- the eleventh Doctor doesn't find out. You know, Matt Smith doesn't find out which one it actually is until he regenerates and comes out of the regeneration to find out which face he's got.
4: Uh.
0: That could be interesting as well, couldn't mm. it? Yeah, it could actually. That's quite a good idea. He said, anyway, uh, Mr. Porro carries on and says moving on i look in the internet ramblings of fan and people with an obsession with polls and surveys who'll be the next doctor what is the best ever seventh episode or what is the best f- <laughs> what is your favorite third line of neil gaiman dialogue spoken by a character in nightmare in silver anyway i thought it might be more fun if we did a few more essential surveys i'll set you off And here you go. He's he's given us two possible surveys. I think we should throw this out to the listeners to uh, write in and give us their answers. But for the first survey, the nominations are Clara in Cold War, Leela in The Talons of Weng Chiang, and Perry in Planet of Fire. And the question is, which companion looks best wet? (laughs) Ooh, lummy!
1: (laughs) Don't give Mark that this time of
4: night.
0: (laughs) And the uh, second... uh, the second set he gives us is Jabe in the End of the World, the Wooden King in the Doctor, the Widow in the Wardrobe, <laughs> and Turlo in everything from Morden oh, Undead to Planet of Fire, with special mention to Phasm- Phantasmagoria. Who is the most Who is the most wooden character in an episode of Doctor Who?
2: That's a bit harsh. I like Mark Fritz and I think he's very good.
0: Yeah, so do I. But uh... it can only be Adric, surely. Wooden? Yeah, I mean... I don't know if Adric was wooden. uh, He was certainly something, but I'm not sure wooden, (laughs) except
1: in Valva, of course. Well, every time I sat down in the room, it felt like somebody had thrown a chair at me.
4: He's that wooden. To be fair, it'd be chameleon, wouldn't it? It would be.
0: No, he's metallic.
4: Well. Uh, Okay. uh, He took root in the TARDIS. Oh,
0: dear, that's you should yeah, apologize for that okay. before we move on no anyway <laughs> he, uh, the reverend captain says well boys that should help pad the bits between the discussion right and you know the three more i think four more actually yeah four more messages we've got are all about tonight's subject so i think we'll come back to those at the end but first let's uh, let's talk about the third doctor shall we We've only been here for 40 minutes.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think we should. I think we should move on to tonight's episode discussion. Um, well, I not know how to start. Shall we start with a few initial thoughts from each of you? What was your overriding impression of the third Doctor's tenure? Uh, Simon? This is, funny
4: enough, a project I'm working on at the moment. I'm working on a two-page comic strip, and it's based on John Pertwee's Doctor which Lee has written. And it's it's quite timely, really, because obviously I've been almost working out almost like a caricature, and, and the story itself is very much a caricature of his Doctor. But the big thing I'm finding from it is the John Pertwee era, Pertwee, not Pertwee, um, <laughs> is it's just like one big comic strip. It's the nearest thing that Doctor Who gets to being like a comic strip. It's big, it's Technicolor, it's... Silly, techno, mumbo-jumbo. It's James Bond. It's silly expressions. It's... Um,
0: Larger-than-life monsters. Exactly, yeah. It's caricatures of
4: uh, official derm. You had that short period near the start where it started to be a bit more adult. And um, funny enough, only today I watched an old interview from 1984 with, with John Pertwee. And he's saying about oh, I tried to make it more adult. And you think, yeah, you did... Well, somebody did for a while, but it didn't really it didn't really catch on.
0: Um, I don't think it was really John Pertwee that did no, that anyway. No. I think that was a mistake as much as anything. <laughs> the the way Season 7 changed, I, don't, I think, was just... It was a handover between production teams, and I don't think the new people really got to grips with what they were doing until their second year there. Mm. So I think that Season 7 is a bit of coasting on fumes as much as anything. Not that I'm saying it's not good. No, I'm just no. saying I don't think anybody really knew what they were doing. Mm. Mm. um
4: but yeah and 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 i'm not not saying any of that in a negative way it's a lovely it's the thing It's the thing everyone's very critical of of the moffat era now and it's the same thing with the Pertwee era that possibly at the time i mean i don't know whether people if there were cynics at the time it probably hadn't been going long enough to to get cynical fans but you could say that if that was today, that people would say, oh my God, it's all like one big comic strip and it's all very cartoony. And looking back on it, it's a gorgeous little gem of an era. And I, think, I think people will think the same of the Moffat era. They'll think it's a big gem of silliness and, and random thoughts and, and ideas.
0: fun. Yes. And yeah. lively and interesting and exciting and... Beautifully acted. Hmm. I think you're right there, and I, I, when you said it's a big comic strip, I'm thinking, what better recommendation could there be? Mm, yeah, you know, too much, too much on television is inverted commas realistic. You know, if I want EastEnders, I'll watch EastEnders. If I watch Doctor Who, it's because I want something else. Mm, mm.
4: You know, and one thing, you know, I, I've said about this about Terror of the Ortons, Time Lords in Boulder hats. I love that. I absolutely yeah. adore that, and I love. Terror it. of
0: the Autons is kind of the quintessential John Pertwee story, absolutely. isn't it?
4: Absolutely, it's like one big annual strip. It's wonderful.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of what Russell T. Davis brought to the new series was informed by that era. Very much so. Very the stuff much that, yeah, so. Sort yeah. of kept on. Um, I think it's quite an interesting period in the show. It's quite a a sea change because you're going from the old sort of sixties style production over to the the new color regime and different production values and they, they as simon said they went for more of an actioned theme to it trying to be like a james bond i'm
0: not a, entirely sure yeah i'm not entirely sure it was that hugely different really it's just uh, for me a lot of john pertwee is kind of season five writ large I mean, you look at Season 5, I know Enemy of the World is a slightly different case in point, but you, you know, you've got helicopters, chasers in Fury yeah. from the Deep and, you know, uh, just trying to think offhand, but Web of Fear was certainly a bit of an action adventure with soldiers facing off against the Yeti in the underground and, you know, factory floors and stuff like that. It's not that far removed from what was going on in Season 5 really. Actually, ironically, if you think about Planet of the Spiders, that's when it all
4: of a sudden, right at the end, he got all his action stuff in one episode, mm. didn't he? There were little bits and pieces with his... Hey! But um, <laughs> he tried to get those... Well, they, he you cared, did, but-
0: of course, have Unit all the way through. Yeah. But I don't think it's that far removed from... Uh, I mean, if you look at it, especially Season 7, and then, of course, it dilutes as things change. But especially with Season 7, it's all sort of near-future installations under siege from alien intelligences. Mm. And that's pretty much the story of Season 5. And that had been coming in since Season 3. You know, uh, people kind of tend to draw a line between the War Games and Spearhead from Space and say, this is where Doctor Who changed. But I think it's only a superficial change, and actually the series itself kind of more or less covers the same bases. Of course, the big change is uh, having the Doctor stuck on Earth and unit. But of course, you know, Patrick Trown's Doctor's adventures mostly took place on Earth. I like the fact that
1: um, being stuck on Earth forces him into um, hanging around with the same kind of people every week. So you've got the unit and the master yeah. and... So it becomes an ensemble piece, which is lovely. Uh, almost like theatre, almost. Um, that is
0: the big change, actually. Yeah. That's the one big change, isn't it?
1: That's a major change. Um, I I mean, I love the era, but I, I suppose if you were to think of the era as a genre of music, it'd be Scar, because it was very two-tone. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, you've got that first gritty era, and then you've got that more cartoony strip second part, uh, when it's season kind of eight, kind of starts kicking off um but i love that season seven we talked about this many times um you said you thought as a whole season it didn't work but individual stories it did and i kind of agree with you you know
0: i would say about season seven is the people who think all doctor who should be like season seven are no more doctor who fans than the people who stopped watching doctor who when david tennant left They're David Tennant fans, and the people who like Season 7 to the exclusion of other areas of Doctor Who, like, for instance, what Stephen Moffat was doing, or Terror of the Autons, are Season 7 fans. They're not Doctor Who fans, they're Season 7 fans. Wow, did people stop watching it after David Tennant left? Yeah, a lot of people stopped watching after David Tennant left, and a lot of new people came on board instead. Amazing, I can't believe that yeah no, really? I, I know <laughs> but i know it, people who stopped watching and i know people who started watching with Matt smith
1: god blimey oh well hopefully i will be listening to this podcast and get enthused and want to go back and listen to or watch all of them uh what what i liked about pertwee was his um the even though you had these two kind of eras within within his era kind of thing um he as the doctor was was actually very doctor it's strange because he's got a mixture of that pomposity and that Adam Adamant frills and the James Bond gadgets and all that. But he was also, he had problems with hypocrites and civil servants, authority, military, um, and he was an action man and, and a pacifist. And that's very Doctor Who, actually, apart from maybe William Hartnell, it's pretty much what Doctor Who is. So he still kept that running through um, all of his tenure, even though it did feel, you know, um, very different uh, is it true? Is it fair to say the first the season seven was gritty? Because everybody says that word, but I'm not entirely sure that's the word I'd give it.
2: Well, it's probably it was the black and white
0: print. <laughs> <laughs> it was less fantastical in nature, wasn't it? Instead of invasions from outer space, yeah. you had um, okay. So you had the monsters. Forget spearhead from space for a minute, because that was kind of a story apart. But in the Silurians, you had. Um, These creatures had been hibernating underground. Well, that's not invasion from outer space. So, instantly, you know, one level of fantasy has been pegged back there because you've taken the sort of outer space thing and it's gone. Ambassadors of Death the aliens in that are entirely secondary to the plot they might as well not be in it it's a sort of government spies run around kind of a thing and inferno pretty much the same take the primords out of that and the story itself doesn't change so when people say gritty what they mean is probably more like there are less fantastical elements and season seven Starts off with fantastical elements and each consecutive story becomes less fantastical until the end, you know, the primords barely really register in Inferno and that story's hardly even science fiction at all, really.
4: Am I right in thinking there's far less incidental music in season seven? I don't know why I think that. Maybe that's my memory doing that, but um, I remember what, you know. Oh, in, I'd sit in...
0: down and watch the Silurians if I were you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm probably
4: thinking Inferno. For some reason, I'm thinking Inferno hasn't got a lot of... I'm thinking that that, that sequence at the end. You know, That had
0: the um, sound of the mine instead, the sound of the drilling, the yes, drill bore instead. Yeah,
4: that was really effective. But, um,
0: yeah. Mm. I don't know, one sort of... Not quite an innovation, but one thing that came to the fore in Season 7 that carried on through was pompous authority figures, you know, itching to have their pomposity pricked by the Doctor's... Pomposity.
3: Alternative pomposity, yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is why the doctor didn't get on with these people, because it was one kind of pomposity rubbing up against another, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, but he always had the best lines. I mean, when he came into Professor Stallman's um, laboratory and he says, Liver still playing you up, Professor! (laughs) That 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 little dig every time he came in was just so lovely, and that carried on definitely through, I think, to Tom Baker, obviously doing the same kind of thing, just stabbing at these um, very boring little people that uh, have got all the rules and regs, health and safety people and whatever, you know. I feel like I'm on some kind of delay here.
0: Every time I stop, there's a gap. <laughs> uh, Am I? Yeah. Well, that's usually because I've asked a question and you've changed the subject.
1: I believe I was talking about the era, but never mind. I'll,
0: I'll leave it uh, to no, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, but I just brought up the authority figures and asked if it was an innovation. or well, I suggested that it was an innovation that was carried over from Season 7 when other things weren't. Yes, it was.
1: Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, okay. But the point is, I mean, the point is, when you look at what else was in Season 7 and what they didn't carry through, because yeah, apart from, you know, the Sea, sea Devils being a sequel to the Silurians, when you get into Season 8, it is back to alien invasions, pretty much. You've, uh, apart from anything else, you've got the Master, who's an alien on Earth, who is bringing other alien species to Earth. You know, it goes back to the fantasy. It goes back to the comic strip, mm. as uh, mm. Simon put it. Mm. But the one thing to carry through is um, these sort of pompous figures. And, you know, things like Claws of Axos, They they are in installations. You know, it is a sort of near-future installations that you can just about imagine. So it's not like there's a line after season seven and then season eight's completely different. It's almost as if they take cherry-picking the best things out of the stories in season seven and then giving them a complete makeover with a different tone. It's the tone that changes mm. more than anything. And the fact that they bring the aliens back. Yeah. I mean, even visually, it looks, it looks
4: different. It looks like a different series in season nine, doesn't it? Sorry, season eight, I mean. Yeah, I mean, even this costume. All of a sudden, there's colour in it. I mean, it's it's black for most of seven, isn't it? A black cloak and everything like that, and then
0: um, and grey, yeah. And then he's in greens and reds and blues and things. Yes, yeah. Um, what do we think of John Pertwee then? <clears throat> <laughs> go on, Mark. A <laughs> uh, bit
2: of a pompous wit. The actor or the part? Um, well, the way he played it, put it that way. I don't. Th- well, a lot of people say he's playing himself, but.
0: I'm not entirely sure because uh, he did, you know, when he was off camera, as it were, he liked to play the fool a bit, didn't he? You know, you see him on the sofa on interview shows and he likes nothing better than to put on silly voices and make jokes and stuff like that. I don't think he was playing himself. I think he was trying to underplay himself, if anything. Mm. It, you know, he was employed for his comedy talents And it was only after he'd got the part That he came in and decided to play it straight Well <laughs> He's
4: he's possibly the most unapproachable doctor I think He, he seems to, he, oh, He's kind of got a warm centre But he's fairly He's so abrupt with people mm. he's, so, mm-hmm. he's so rude It's unbelievable
2: He doesn't treat his companions particularly well In my opinion No the way he speaks to them, particularly joe, it's not well it was almost like a thing, like a couple having like a dysfunctional relationship
1: <laughs> that 's like most of Doctor Who in the late years, surely
2: maybe
0: well, in the eighties, yeah, but in the seventies and the sixties it hadn 't really been like that, had it
1: <laughs> i' got to say anybody who can eat sandwiches and fight is a, <laughs> is a winner in my book, so. Gets my thumbs up. Hurrah.
3: <laughs>
4: I've never seen anyone chew so fast.
3: And
4: he, he tears off a strip off a sandwich. He, he's, fa- he's fascinating to watch, I have to say. Um, yeah, even watching him eat a sandwich is just really odd. But then that's me. I'm, I'm a bit of a people watcher. I just think people's mannerisms are very odd anyway.
1: I mean, he also has some great lines. I mean, ham-fisted bum vendor is uh, is one of my. Did he say? Did did I say bum? I meant bun. Bun vendor. Yeah, Um, is one of my favourite lines of his. He's just. I don't know whether that was in the script. I'm sure he must have made that up. Um, No, I I don't know what Mark's problem is. To be honest,
2: shut up. I think it's. I think a lot of it is. (laughs) I think a lot of it's down to who your first doctor is, and I think Mm. perhaps because you two are. fractionally older he was your first doctor so you kind of <laughs> he wasn't have that attachment Ah, uh, tom was mine but um, yeah i don't
1: know I, I i do like john i find him funny i like his arrogance i mean his confidence is 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 bordering on arrogance but i i like that uh, and i like the doctor being a bit um I mean, a lot of the
2: doctors can be arrogant
1: but i don't know there's just something that rubs me up the wrong way about him. It's just... Yeah, but don't forget, he does learn a lesson. He actually, you know, I think he's very arrogant and he's full of himself, blah, blah, blah. He goes and steals a crystal from Metabolus 3 and all that kind of business. Metabolus. Yeah. Um, and at the end of it all, of course, that's his downfall. And, um, you know, he's, he, he, you know, he ends up regenerating. And it's a Cho-G, isn't it? Um, it's kind of teaching him a valuable lesson of, uh, you know... That's what I feel. Anyway, I feel like by the end of his tenure, it's kind of like it's it's quite a quiet exit for him. It could have been a a massive action-packed explosion, couldn't it? On a bike, that he could have had a regeneration then. But no, it becomes a very, you know, I'm going to pass over to Simon now. He's got his hand out.
4: Only as much as he took a gyrocopter and a car (laughs) and a flying hovercraft to get there. He didn't crash
1: in it, did he? He didn't crash. He had a really nice journey into his netherworld.
0: <laughs> but what? But the the thing that brought the Third Doctor's regeneration on was a huge explosion of radioactivity in the giant spider's cave when the crystal was reformed and the whole mountain blew up.
1: Yeah, which wouldn't have happened if he had not taken it in the first place. But did, did it? Well, but it was an explosion. Yeah. I can't remember, really, was it? Okay, maybe it was then. But he's still lying on the floor with a, with a hippie monk floating above
4: him. And then he got lost for three weeks in the vortex. Did he?
0: Oh, um, I see what you're saying, yes. You're talking about the actual regeneration itself. Yes. You're trying to on from the new series to the old. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly fell backwards in my chair then, sorry. Not on what you it's, said, I just literally uh, nearly fell off my chair, sorry. I don't think <laughs> the problem with the third Doctor... Is his arrogance. All Doctors are arrogance. Yeah. I don't think it's his rudeness. All Doctors are rude. I think it's the patronizing way in which he does it. Yeah. Most of yeah. the Doctors do it without being patronizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Tom Baker and Liz Sladen, you know, if played differently, Tom Baker and Liz Sladen could have been as bad as, you know the fifth doctor and tegan and adrig Mm. but because they play it with a lot of love and a lot of tenderness and a lot of generosity it actually becomes a charming relationship whereas the third doctor and joe with dialogue that ostensibly is written in a very similar way but john pertory plays it very patronizingly and so when Mm -hmm. he's telling his little homilies yeah, and, you know, the, the whole name dropping and telling stories and all this kind of thing is something that's pretty much common to most of the doctors. But it's the way you tell the stories. Mm. You know, if you can if you can give somebody a lesson without if you can teach somebody something without them thinking they've sat through a lesson, then that's a lesson better taught. But the trouble with uh, the third doctor is even when he's not teaching somebody something, he still makes it sound like they're in the classroom. <laughs> yeah.
4: I mean, interestingly, um, Lee's just pointed to a picture of Colin Baker. That, that's a case in point of how easily it could have gone wrong. I mean, that was all down to the writing, wasn't it, of how how Colin Baker's doctor started acting. I don't think, given time, that's how that doctor would have panned out. I think he would have been far warmer, as Colin himself as a person actually is. Um,
0: absolutely yeah, yeah.
4: Um, but I, I think what, what softens it with John Pertwee is the way the companions react almost like they're yeah. either, they're either submissive or they're kind of yeah I know the Doctor well enough to know he doesn't really mean it and alright Doctor you know and they shrug it off you know they don't
0: well really there's a prickly quality to the relationship with Liz Shaw and um, when he patronises her she snaps back at him whereas yeah. Joe just takes it on the chin yeah and in fact, with Joe Grant, you almost get the impression that she doesn't realise she's been patronised. No, no. And Sarah Jane kind of
4: takes it, but she she just takes the pee back, doesn't she, really? I mean, she does that right through the Tom Baker time as well. Whenever Tom, Absolutely. You know, that, that Tom Baker speech about, you don't understand, I'm a wanderer in the fifth dimension or whatever he says. And then she's behind him going, oh, I know, you know, and all this sort of thing. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is
0: lovely. Did anybody think it was a problem uh, to have the Third Doctor trapped on Earth?
4: Um, I know the actor himself liked it, didn't he? He thought it was, he thought it was, it was a stronger show for it. But um, he's I'm probably sure.
0: right. Uh, in many ways, it consolidated what Doctor Who was doing and um, turned it into a show. I mean, prior to this, I think by the end of the 60s, pretty much only children were still watching it. I think most of the grown-ups had given up on Doctor Who. The viewing figures plummeted to about a quarter of what they'd been when William Hartnell were the Doctor. Mm. And I think bringing it down to earth and giving you a situation where everybody in the family could sort of analogise some part of what was going on on the screen kind of brought it back into the family domain and turned it back from being just a children's series. In fact, I think properly for the first time, the John Pertwee era is when it actually becomes a family show, as opposed to when it started, when it was very much aimed at children, but with a quality that grown-ups could appreciate. I think John Pertwee's era is the first time when it's actually not just for children, but actually for the whole family. And I think bringing it down to earth and giving people giving the audience and giving the characters problems that everybody could appreciate and understand and could sort of follow through in some way in their own daily lives, even if it was only what they were p- perhaps reading in the papers. This this uh, also comes back to the ensemble cast as well, isn't it? It gives the
4: impression of almost being like a soap opera where you've got this continuous story of so many characters who
0: are involved which allows people to buy into what's going on from one week to the next very easy to drop. i mean if doctor who's not necessarily a cup of tea very easy to watch one story and then drop out before the next one starts but if you've got continuous characters and you know next week it's on earth as well then it kind of gives you another reason to keep watching you know two reasons to keep watching there you know, one the continuing story of the characters, but also the fact that it's on Earth, it's it's very much, for me. I think it's very much a draw. I think Russell T Davis was absolutely I, right.
4: I just about to make the same point. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. with bringing in um, Jackie and Mickey and the family. I mean, I, I initially I thought, oh, why are they bringing the family invo- into it? You know, it's but, and but actually, the it's very very really clever. Very clever yeah,
0: and if you anchor the stories in a world that the audience can recognise, you make the threat seem that much more real. Look at the rings of Akaten. The threat is entirely nebulous because it you know, there's nothing in that story that you can remotely recognise. So you don't care really.
1: I cared. <laughs> I like that one. I'm gonna vote it really high just to knock everybody off the poles how can, you okay. not, how can you not like it there's bizarre full of fantastic creatures that have been invented uh, just like uh, john Perry's kind of era i suppose you know especially the carnival of monsters something like that you know lots of weird creatures being invented to to help with the narrative or the place or the theme i mean the carnival Monsters is a ridiculous story um if you think about it uh, but but it's just brilliant to watch so uh, rings of akatan i like him i think it's good
0: Yes, but the point with Carnival of Monsters is that you can recognize what it's about. You have politicians being politicians. You have uh, immigration problems at a time when Europe was opening up and immigration was becoming a problem. You had the Miniscope at a time when entertainment was changing the way it ran. Uh, You had all sorts of analogous problems content in the story which the audience at home could recognize and appreciate and understand and would somehow impact upon how they were living their lives none of which is true of the rings of akatan and i didn't say i didn't like it i said generally or the point is generally speaking most people didn't
1: yeah uh, no i agree with you but you just didn't have the doctor on a sky bike
4: let's not forget it was a weak episode it was weak it was weak. He's given me such a look here. <laughs> <laughs> and with Carnival of Monsters, you've got a, a triple-layered story.
1: Agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree.
4: Um, I mean, we're not supposed to be talking about Matt Smith now, but, I mean, Rings of Akaten, yeah, the first half was wonderful imagination, wonderfully put together, and then kind of fell apart. But, um, but yeah, no Carnival of Monsters, I, I really love. I really love it. Um and but the thing is we anyone who was affected by that Five Faces of Doctor Who season has a soft spot for all of those stories. I that's my theory. I mean it I love it, you know, the Crotons get slagged off and I love the Crotons. And um I can't think where else was there. What was the Three, three Doctors. Three Doctors.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. And an earthly child an earthly and Legopolis. Legopolis. Except nobody really cared about Logopolis because they'd <laughs> only been on a few months earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the time.
4: But even that, I've got, you know, I've got a sore spot for Logopolis, in a funny way.
1: Was was Peladon repeated in that slot, or was that something else? No, the following
0: year. Oh, okay. There was a second repeat series the following year with Curse of Peladon, Genesis of the Daleks, and Earthshock.
4: Um, can I just and this isn't
0: getting a plug-in, but it is,
4: is I was reading... You've already plugged your comic strip. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have another one. You'll like this one, JR. The You, you and Who um, Contact has been made, Volume 1. I'm reading through that. And one of the writers makes the point that they watched the repeat of The Web of Fear in 1971. Were there black and white repeats during John Pertwee's
0: no, time? No, I'm not sure what he meant, so oh, okay. Uh, I think that's some kind of a mistake. The memory cheating. Really? Oh, right. Okay. Now, there's a plug. I would have thought so.
2: I thought you were the editor.
0: (laughs) I was the editor.
1: (laughs) Oh, dear. It's escaped. uh, no, that's interesting. Now, I wonder why he wrote that. Maybe it's something in his, like you say, the memory's cheating. Maybe he believes that there was a a repeat. That's nice.
0: So, if his memory's cheating, you don't take his memories out of the essay he's written? That's his essay. That's his memory. He's allowed to cheat. (laughs) Um, look, let's get back to John Pertree Yeah. Um,
4: well, let's I mean, all was, name. Sorry, I was only oh, making on. that point because you know, if there were black and white repeats interjecting with his tenure, that's quite an interesting no. dynamic. There, there were no, no
0: out of um, sequence repeats until the Five Faces. Right. Okay. Sorry. There were no repeats. No out of Doctor repeats before the Five Faces of Doctor Who. Okay. Wow, that's
4: why it was such a big thing when it was on.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, let's all—should we all nominate a favourite story from the Pertwee era? Yeah, well, it's easy for me. Uh, okay, is Lee talking away from the microphone? He's—he's he's moaning because he can't. We can't name one. Go on, Mark. Okay, if Lee can't name one, Mark. Hmm. Um
2: I would probably go with something like The Time Warrior.
3: Hmm. Um, a good
2: little story. Well for a pertwee.
1: I yeah, The Time Warrior is fun actually. Do you know there's a really funny scene in that isn't it? It's just come back to me making me chuckle inside where he's throwing stink bombs over the edge of the battlement yeah. and he's <laughs> he's whistling as he does it. <laughs> That's just brilliant. Yeah, good scene. He's having a lot of fun in that one I think. I've always liked Inferno. That's that's one of my favourites. I just don't know why. Um, uh, it, it hits all the right buttons. It's very Quatermass, and I like Quatermass, so maybe that's the reason why I like that one so much.
0: Timon? Terror of the Ortons, of course. Ah, yes, of course. Ortons, Ortons, Terror of the Ortons. Um, Orton, short for automaton. Yes,
4: of course. Not Joe Orton. Um, yeah, Time Ebola hats lots of color um yeah comic strippy um dolls coming alive people getting smothered by plastic chairs the whole something that's very uh familiar to people being turned on themselves daffodils the first appearance of the master for god's sake it's an absolutely iconic story
2: I'd also have to put in a shout for Ambassadors of Death as well. I think that's quite a, a decent story. You can't have two, Mark. Really the best, though, Mark? <laughs> well, I am a bit of a contrarian well, I, when it comes to Burt. I
4: enjoyed that far more than I thought I would have. I only watched it last year, and uh, that was far better than I expected it to be.
2: And mm. Dudley Simpson gets properly funky on that soundtrack.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hoping, because I haven't seen The Mind of Evil in colour yet, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm hoping it's going to be... A really enjoyable watch i I kind of liked it when I first saw it, but I knew I was waiting for colorized versions to watch. so has anybody else seen the the, the new d v d
2: yet or is it not out yet it's pretty decent I think the it suffers a little bit like some of the others have where the one that's had all the attention is the the first episode where it's been painstakingly recreated, and then they've used the color recovery process on the the ones after it, and they don't look quite so good, but it's it still looks pretty decent.
0: I've had the color. I only had a quick look, but I've heard the color recovery is pretty good on three to six. Mm-hmm. I think it's just episode two they had problems with. So after you've had episode one, because the troubled yeah. one is the very next one, there's more of a contrast.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh no, it still still looks good. And how is it as a story? Because I don't I don't know it, if I'm honest. I mean, was mm. it the target? But was the dooms was that a doomsday weapon? Was the mind of evil? No, no, that's. No, th- One, that's oh, um, colony in, space. Oh, the colony in yeah. the space. So, what was Mind of Evil as a book? Then it was Mind of Evil. Yeah. Oh, I just, I've just never read it. Then I have no idea what is in
0: that story. It was a late, a late target, late. and it's, it's got late- a very
2: believable dragon.
0: Hey. <laughs> I
2: think uh, Simon. There's you, a dragon
1: in it. Simon, if you liked ambassad- Ambassadors of Death, I think you can like Mind of Evil. It's kind of a cross between that and Sea Devils, a bit I suppose, with a bit of action in it and prisons and the Master and all that kind of business. Yeah. Oh, I've just. Told yeah, him. I think oh, Lee's just about nailed it. Uh, huh? yeah, I've just told him who's in it. <laughs> Who? <laughs> The master I've just spoiled it. For, sorry, there, son. I've read the program. Oh, he's I've, seen it right from the first <laughs> episode, right from
0: the start, isn't I've he? I've
4: read the program guide. There are no surprises in that respect.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the master. There's no surprising than the master in that one. He's in it pretty much from the start, isn't he? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh,
1: it's it's a uh, yeah. It's a really one of those stories, a bit like the Time Monster that kind of gets forgotten a bit, and left behind. Ambassador De- of Death was another one, wasn't it? And they're kind of forgotten gems, actually. Um, I really like Mind of Evil. And I like the Ambassadors, and actually, the guy I rewatched. Oh, thanks, sorry, rewatched Time Monster because uh, we were talking about it the other week, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs>
0: you know, Come to, to my shame. Oh, it was really fun. Apart the from, Time Monster uh, apart from is Cronus. great fun. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. brilliant. <laughs> oh, some of it's great fun for being awful, and some of it's great fun for just being mad. But some of it's great fun just for being great fun.
2: I don't mind it. I know a lot of people uh, don't
0: like it. Like I it. think the Time Monster is probably one of the more purely just enjoyable stories of the entire period. Even though if you had to say whether it's one of the better stories from the entire period, it'd be down at the bottom of the pile.
2: Hmm. I was just going to say, I'm talking about Mind of Evil, I can't remember the actor's name now. He's been in a couple of Doctor Who's. Um, the guy who gets subjected to the machine and ends up being made good. I yes. think he does a really decent job of
0: um, um act, acting out that part. Uh, oh, surname's Carthy. Um or yeah. McCarthy. Oh I can't oh. I've blanked as well now, Mark. <laughs> but yes, I know who you mean. He was in power of crawl, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he's really good in that. Mm. Yes. Oh, he does really well, yeah, yeah.
4: Um I made and, a point of it, watching um Planet of the Spiders uh yesterday and today, actually. Just to And that's the first time I've watched that. Since transmission, I think, I think, properly. Anyway, uh, and I thought it, it was fascinating in a lot of ways. Um, one thing I wanted to say because we earlier we were talking about the Matt Smith regeneration and who's going to take over as a doctor. Mm. I know that another well known podcast has got into a bit of jip, hasn't it, for saying something about uh, race as to who the doctor should be. And I just wanted to, um, it's an interesting point is that obviously Cho J, that character uh, the Tibetan character when he regenerates he regenerates into another Tibetan character
0: yeah uh, oh, kind
4: no, I mean, of no. yeah sort he's of not a, yeah or, or is he's he just not is quite he just the a same time thing long, is it well, is he putting a time is he a lord putting another stupid accent is that what he's doing
1: it'd be funny, uh, if, no. he, it'd be funny if he turned into a Glaswegian don't you think
0: <laughs> well um Choji like is not a regeneration of Kanpo. he's an aspect of him isn't he
4: Yeah but doesn't he when he regenerates
0: he Well he can yeah he but the one regenerates into the other because the other has already been around so it's like he he's like he split a bit of himself off and then when it became time to regenerate he regenerated into that bit oh, but right. the point is he was choosing he was doing a Romana yeah, That was a choice Right Right. Yeah I mean it's like When Romana regenerated One of the people she regenerated into was black mm, mm. Yeah So yeah, that's true. You know If you're going to do precedents from the classic series yeah, There's no, another I, one
4: Yeah No I'm not, I'm not saying anything is right or wrong I'm just saying it's just interesting
1: Yeah but Romana's um, forced uh, regenerations You can't take that seriously. Is that really canon?
4: (laughs) I've edited it out of my video player.
0: It's on screen.
4: Douglas Uh, Adams came up with it. I'll let it go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they must have been projections. I mean, that's been argued for years, though, isn't it? Um, Didn't we cover this on the Regenerations podcast, anyway?
0: Whether they're projections or not... The thing we're talking about is the fact that one of them is black, Mm. and if they are just projections, any one of them is a projection that she can choose as a body to regenerate into, Mm -hmm. and she still has an option of a black body, so she could... Regenerate into
1: yeah, and also Middle Eastern, I believe, and also we had a smaller, very smaller character as well come out, a little tiny one. It was, it was probably a kid, actually, wasn't it? But um, so there's no reason why we can't have Warwick Davis as the next um, Doctor Who. All right, <laughs> my money's on Warwick. It's about twenty thousand to one. Okay. As I've
4: said before, twins. <laughs> what? We... Yeah. Why not? <laughs>
0: It won't happen.
4: And I nearly fell with my chair.
0: And back on the subject. Yes. John Pertwee. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of people feel that the period got gradually weaker and more diluted as it went on. But I think differently. I think it gets stronger as it goes. I think it starts out not quite knowing what it is. And by the end, it really thoroughly knows what it is. So much so that the last season, Pertwee's last season, is kind of almost the greatest tits. Hmm. Mm. What does anybody else think? Does it get Does it get better as it goes along, it or
1: gets get worse? More, it gets or? more
4: confident. Certainly.
1: Can you Can you Can you convince us on that um, line of uh, thought there, Jr.
0: About it getting stronger? Yeah,
1: and about the greatest. Well, hits it as knows well. about the what about the greatest, greatest hit and the confidence and the yeah and and yeah Well the
0: last season you look at the five stories that make up the last season you've got it's it kicks off with a pseudo historical which is something the series hasn't done for quite a number of years although it toyed with it a bit in the time monster so it's kind of saying oh look we are doctor who we can do doctor who then it does dinosaurs and Everybody knows that the one thing kids always wanted to see was Doctor Who meet the dinosaurs. So it's like, bam, we can do pseudo historical. Bam, we can do dinosaurs. Bam, we can do Daleks. Bam, we've got a Peladon sequel, and bam, we're back to the giant insects. It's a sort of greatest hits. It's a Doctor Who greatest hits funneled through Pertwee's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. It's got a whole ton of unit. It's got a new companion who comes in strong and prior to Joe Grant, you know, companions coming in could always be a bit hit or miss and had to find their feet. But here's a companion that they're strong enough and confident enough to introduce and she is from the start what she's going to be. And, you know, the location filming and the kind of sets and the kind of stories they were telling, it's almost like they were saying, this is what we're good at. And, you know, this is what we're going to do this year, the things we're good at. Yeah, we're going to give you what you want. And we're going to give it to you in a way that you're going to really enjoy.
1: Where is the season have before, I convinced you? Yeah, you have. Whereas the season before that, um, if I remember right, we had the Green Death at the end, which was a nice strong one. There was there was a couple in there that weren't so great, wasn't it? The mutants
0: and a, a few others. Yeah, felt, no, that was felt the, felt the season lackluster. before. Oh,
1: was it? All oh, right. Lack, yeah, black luster. I thought.
0: I'm not talking about whether the stories were good. I'm talking about whether the production was a confident one. Yeah. And I think it gets. I think the production grows more confident as it goes along. It may not be my favourite period of the show, but I think
2: if you look at when it comes to the transition over to Tom Baker, I think it's in a far healthier state than it
0: was when uh, when that period started. Well, I've said, I've always said that Barry Letts and Terence Dixby basically invented Doctor Who they took you know they took a series that had existed for six or seven years and never really quite knew what it was and tried out all sorts of different things and it kind of consolidated itself at the end of the third year and was kind of feeling in its way into being what it was but then Barry Letts and Terran Sticks took it stood it on its feet gave it a set of rules and then at the end of their period sent it out in the world to go and have fun
4: uh, and if you if you do one thing with the uh, watching the planet of spiders when i came to the end of it and he turned into tom baker i felt the urge to just watch the beginning of robot and tom baker is literally able to hit the ground running it's mm. it's a very strong well, he's not
2: wearing a corset,
4: is he oh uh so it's such a solid setup that it literally continues in in a way that when you get this change of doctors, there, there's a little jerk, but it is a complete. With this, is the, the transition is incredibly smooth between the two.
1: Well, the narrative,
4: the narrative as well,
1: uh, from what know the end of the regeneration sequence to the the next story, is continuous, and I don't think it it felt so continuous with the previous regeneration sequences. So it did almost felt like it felt like a soap opera, with the Doctor being in it. And regenerating just into the next episode kind of thing.
2: You did also have a bit more continuity with the production mm. side of things because yeah. Barry Letts stayed on to, to help Hinchcliffe mm. through
0: his sort of... Well, in fact, here. Robot was made as part of season 11. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, Philip Hinchcliffe didn't take over until after a production break and they started mm. again.
1: Yeah, you can easily
0: see John Pertwee doing Robot, actually. Does yeah. anybody... Um, What does everybody think of UNIT? I mean, it's so long ago now. Let's not say, oh, it was a good idea or a bad idea. But do we think it worked?
1: It's a really weird thing. I've always questioned UNIT. Even when I was growing up, it always felt like it was a it, it it was a great idea. But I'm not sure whether it actually worked. It's like Torchwood. Torchwood's a great idea that has been happening since Victorian times, but in reality, when you look at it in the the history in the world of Doctor Who, it's kind of just gets in the way a little bit. It was a bit crumbly around the edges, and it doesn't quite work. If you really pry, you know, if you really pry into units, ethos, and history, there isn't any, is there? But I mean, you kind of think, well. It doesn't quite stand up, does it? But I, what I particularly liked was the fact that you did have it there, so the doctor could have this tussle, and it had great characters in it. You know, you can't beat Yates, Levine, uh, Yates, Benton, and um, the Brigadier. Really, can you? They're fantastic characters. Um, but anyway, that's. I'm problem. not
2: sure I like the idea of the doctor. It's like he's working for the man, isn't it? He's. Because before he's always been a bit of a, a freewheeler, whereas now he's. Ah, yeah, part of the establishment. He,
1: no, nah, he's, he's not, though, is he? Because he likes to buck the trend. Uh, you know, he's trying to. Every time he's being asked to do something, it's kind of like on his terms. Uh, the Brigadier will say, come on, Doctor, we got to do this. And he go, well, no, I'd rather sit down and have a cup of tea, actually. He goes, well, what are you doing? Come on, we've got to go and save the... No, 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 So it's fine. I'll do it my own time, thank you very much. So he's not really, <laughs> you know, he's not really jumping to it, is he? And, and being and being the the man, as it were. He is uh, sticking mm. it to the man, actually, Mark.
0: Okay, I disagree. To put it another way, <laughs> rather than say whether unit is right or wrong thing... Given that UNIT does exist and UNIT were in those stories, do we think UNIT worked?
2: I like the characters. I think the Brig is fantastic, and I think it's it. Uh, what Lee said earlier about it, I think it was Lee that said earlier. It was like an ensemble cast um, and more like a theatre setup. It does give it a bit more
1: yeah, coherence. If the, if you if you yeah. had to take UNIT away and he was uh, stranded on Earth, which they'd have to have done anyway because of the budget and everything. He wouldn't, he'd be kind of a little bit, he'd be just wandering about. I and mean, maybe, maybe you could have changed him into the littlest hobo Time Lord, but I don't know whether it would work. He did need some grounding. He did need, it did need to be like a dad's army set up or a, a situation comedy set up where you had him in one place with a bunch of people reacting. It was just easier to write, easier to deal with. And I think it, I think it did work, actually. I think you had to take it away It may may have felt a little bit um, listless, a little bit lost, and maybe the audience wouldn't have taken to it quite so much.
0: And in the... We didn't really get Simon on there. Simon got anything to say about Units?
3: Hmm.
4: In the new series, you're seeing Unit as I think it was intended. In the way it was represented, we only saw three or four characters at a time, didn't we?
0: I mean, we saw lots of soldiers. We
4: did, yeah. We saw some, in essence, Star Trek red shirts, didn't we? The guys who went out in their berets and got shot. Um, you see less of them now, really. Do, well, well, yeah. But when they appear in the new series, you know, they're there in full. You know, yeah, they are literally a military organisation. In the in the Pertwee era, they're they're fairly maverick. I was thinking about today that you know, Sarah <laughs> Jane Smith goes up to the Brigadier and says. Um, there's going to be a press conference. Could you get me entry into it? He goes, yeah, I can sort that out. You know, it's quite maverick in that respect. And, and because you only see a few characters, you get the impression it's a fairly small organisation. So, mm. Certainly in the UK anyway. But, I mean, that's that's probably it. You're thinking of Stuart Fell, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was a tramp in Planet of the Spiders. So, um, unless he was the soldier who'd hit in hard times. I think the, Amer- <laughs> that- the American <laughs> viewers must love Stuart Fell for having British teeth.
2: <laughs> not as British as uh, Telford Thomas
4: who's that again who's that
0: the Welsh the man the Welsh chap
4: oh Um oh yes yes com- yes yes comedy
0: Welsh man yeah yeah I know in the okay then finally in the pantheon of Doctor Who eras and epochs and stories and ten years and doctors where does John Pertwee? St- Sort of fit in? Is is it an important stepping stone? Is he, is the, this is fondly remembered by the general public, but fans tend to look down their noses on it a bit. Are they right to do so? Or are they actually wrong? Are the general public right?
1: I I don't think anybody should be looking down their noses at John Pertwee, his era, his doctor. Um, the producers and you know they tried to save the show for goodness sake, and they did a really really good job. So you have got to kind of doff your hat to that. There's a whole bunch of fantastic stories. I thought the production, even though a bit mixed at the beginning, was ended up being pretty solid, like you said. But I still like that season seven. Uh, you know, there's a lot to like. There's a lot to love. There's one or two individual stories that you could probably cast aside and burn in the fire. But generally speaking, I think no, I, th- I think no one should be looking down their noses at that. I can't imagine anybody. Would. I mean, you could, you know, not in the same respect that maybe people look down their noses at the McCoy era, uh, but maybe somebody can argue back with me that that was an important era as well, JR. But um, no, I I, I think John Pertwee is a very important piece of Doctor Who history, and John Pertwee himself, absolute megastar. Loved him. Perfect for the role. Though, I think, wasn't it Ron Moody they were going to have, or was it. At one point, oh, could have been, could have been Ron Moody. And I was looking at pictures of him the other day, and I was like, Who's Ron Moody? I can't remember. And I looked and I thought, Do you know what? After looking at all the pictures of him, he probably would have been a good choice, actually. He did look the part, and and his acting is pretty good, and he could have done a very good John Pertwee esque doctor. But it'd be interesting because obviously, the doctor brings uh, sorry, not the doctor, the actor brings his own self to the part. It'd be interesting to see what Ron Moody would have made of the part, bringing his own self to the part. But, uh, yeah, no, I don't think anybody should be looking down their noses, at their ear. And if they do, then I'll punch them straight off their faces in a loving way.
4: Let's face it, John Pertwee had a nose to look down, didn't he? (laughs) (coughs) If you're wondering why this patronising attitude, he had a nose for being patronised. No, Um, I completely agree with Lee, actually. I mean, again, it's coming back to this thing of his era being uh, like a gem. Um, all part and parcel of Doctor Who having different chapters and different flavors, and he is so far removed from the other Doctors. Um, maybe he's a little bit erupt like William Hartnell or something like that. But it, that's where it stops. I mean, it's you know, in the three Doctors, when the first Doctor comes back, he says, um, hey, "You are the dandy and the clown." You know, I think it's lovely that the Doctor literally has these very rounded personalities. It would be horrible if he if there was like a generic Doctor. I mean, I, I can't help but feel that, you know, Sylvester McCoy was possibly the generic Doctor. That That's how I've always seen him, but then you get people like Pertwee and Troughton where they, they just completely bring something completely new to it and make it work. I mean, that, that says so much for the format and it says so much for the actors, doesn't it?
2: I think if you look at my DVD shelf, even though I'm not a huge Pertwee fan, there are quite a lot of Pertwee stories there. That's partly because I'm a nerdy completist, but Secondly, just because there are some pretty decent stories in there,
0: just ah. not my all-time favorite era. It's always been my contention that, as a run of stories, it's quite dull, but the stories that make up that run are pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, should we finish with some
1: emails? Yeah, yeah. Go on, uh, before then. You, from from before you say anything, sorry. Before you say anything, uh, it's just that I read today on Yahoo that they uh, that there was a. An interview done by a bunch of fans, you probably all know this already, um, uh, with John Pertwee back in the early 90s. And he revealed a few things about his wartime exploits. And one of those things I read, and I just want to share it with you, is he worked for the military intelligence in, in the war. And he sat with Churchill at the table on many occasions. And he was kind of like this, um, I think it's M, isn't it, who does the gadgets from, um, mm. from James Bond. Q. Is it Q? Q, sorry, yeah. So Q, he's a bit like a Q character showing the new recruits how to use these gadgets like maps and silk handkerchiefs and, and pipe, a and smoking pipe with bullets in it and stuff like that, which is it's just so John I mean, you can see, like we were saying earlier, that the actor brings something to the part. He absolutely brought the gadget thing in himself, I guarantee it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was lovely. It'd be nice to read that interview in Doctor Who magazine, I believe it's going to be over the next couple of months. So, anyway. It's been in, has it? Which one? Yes. Um, well, it was on the cover three months, four months ago. Oh, this is this is new news. I don't know what this is then.
0: Okay, well, um,
1: it's on Yahoo. You can check it, and read it. I've stuck it up on my. I Facebook. thought it.
0: Uh, I don't know. I've been buying the magazine, but I don't get to. I'm sure it was John Pertwee was on the cover. Mark adjudicate. I haven't bought it. That's <laughs> what Big while. Bird on the cover, and I thought, give it a miss. I could be wrong, but I was pretty sure it had been on the cover. Maybe I am wrong.
4: Is is Mark is is Pertwee the the only doctor that you actually? Uh, I mean, maybe dislike is a strong word, but is he the only doctor? Yeah,
2: dislike is quite a strong word. Um, it's a bit like favourite albums, favourite bands. You go through phases where you have a particular favourite, and then another one kind of takes your fancy, and you kind of. Move over to that one for a bit, mm. but yeah, I think just that whole patronising element of his personality—I just it turned me off. So he's fairly low down my list, unfortunately.
4: Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. It's like I say with McCoy, I, I I love the I love the man, and I love what he does, and I absolutely adored him before he became the Doctor. But as a Doctor, I find it, it quite bland. But anyway, it's me taking it off subject. Let's have some emails, shall we? <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just looked it up, by the way. John Pertwee interview ran in the two issues prior to the Bells of St. John.
1: Yeah, but I think this is other stuff, maybe. Um, I, I, I'll double check, but if it's going to be, if it's on, was it Yahoo? I'm sure it was Yahoo News. Um, it might have been. Uh, they were it's
0: talking a, about it on the Verity podcast, yeah. and that's what they were talking about.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll double check. But anyway, it was, it was an interesting thing. I, I obviously haven't read it then, have I? But uh, no, it was about his um, wartime years, and that's uh, that was fascinating. Anyway, emails.
0: Um, Well, Richard Hogarth says, John Pertwee is a really great Doctor. He really made the role his own, and I love when an actor can do that in a series like this. I feel Bond needs to learn from Doctor Who. He wasn't a huge fan of Liz and Joe. They never really struck him like Sarah Jane did. She is a benchmarking companion, strong and feminine, but for him, Unit and Roger Delgado really leave a huge mark, especially in The Sea Devils. The Master is just such a breath of fresh air. The moments in the prison lay the groundwork for what comes in RTD's Master stories. In The Demons, Unit are on fine form, and he can't imagine John without them. This era is so much fun, and that's what Doctor Who needs, and that's actually what a lot of eras forget um he's about to rewatch the demon's inferno planet of the spiders and the time warrior dvds um since he heard we were doing uh, john pertwee on this episode
4: those um those uh, publicity shots from claws of axos of john pertwee and roger delgado are so iconic i mean they mm. it's nothing no other pairing of the doctor and the master is quite the same is it it really isn't no
0: no uh, Jenny Shirt says the relationship between the Doctor and the Master was more like they were schoolboy rivals. Um, she thinks of the Doctor in his position saving the others as a kind of a superhero with a, the role of helping unit. I suppose a bit like Batman with the bat signal in a way. Yeah, That's an interesting yeah, I, thought. I agree
1: with that, actually, yeah. yeah. Good mm. point, Jenny.
0: Um, she remembers his love of gadgets and vehicles, including Bessie. Uh, Her favourite stories: The Three Doctors and The Green Death, The Giant Maggots and Joe Grant. Mm -hmm.
4: Do you know, it's a shame that the Master has to become such a megalomaniac now. It's it's kind of a shame that at the time when it was so playful, when they were like, uh, you know, (laughs) schoolboys, just trying, you know, playing one-upmanship, and the Master would always have a a scheme which was all about him and what he could gain from it, and I kind of miss that. I, hate, you know, I miss the fact that he had come back. And when he comes back, he has to destroy the
0: universe. You know, leave Davros to do that. Or well, maybe, um, Alex White says, never saw it as a kid, but extensive VHS releases let him know what he missed. Um, he thinks the UNIT years tapped into the connection that sci-fi fans love when military and scientists get grouped together. Things like Stargate and the fourth series of Buffy and things like Aliens. Add to that a great recurring bad guy in the master, and the stories set on Earth always seem to be more appreciated. Downsides, on the other hand, Venusian karate. John Pertwee just just wasn't John Pertwee just wasn't the action hero he thought he was. And despite the cars, he was never really a James Bond kind of guy either.
4: I think that's the but thing: is that you're not convinced by him. He's kind of no, playing I this action
0: hero, I and mean, he wants to do all that, and it's not convincing. He wants to be the action hero he does. a lot more than he actually is the action hero. But
1: I, I think, I mean, he he was that, he was, you know, I just said about his military intelligence, he was like a Bond Really, but I think he was just getting on a bit, and he did his backing at some point. So when he does his high karate type thing, um, it's, high, it's not high karate. That's a an that's an aftershave, isn't it? But you know what I mean? <laughs> um, aikido and all that, that kind one, of yeah. stuff. But you can just you can see that he's being careful, and it's it's all in it's overacting. <laughs> a lot Perhaps. of ham thrown in for good measure.
0: Anyway, finally from Dan Barrett a time of incredible change for the series the step change from the war games to spearhead is vast And that's not to decry the Troughton era in any way, it's just a massive stylistic revamp in many ways, in many ways as significant as the new series reboot in 2005. Doctor Who undoubtedly becomes much more an action-adventure series during seasons 7, 8 and 9, with an often much more adult edge. This era also ushers in some much more weighty themes as political morality, ecological concerns, militarism, racism and, dare he say it, human relationships all take centre stage. With all this going on, it's tempting to imagine Doctor Who had suddenly got all grown up and boring. Certainly, Pertwee's characterisation cuts a much more avuncular establishment figure, being a lot less eccentric than his predecessors. The truth, though, is quite different. This era is vibrant, creative and compelling, taking every opportunity to scare the pants off the viewers at home with some of the most thrilling monster invasions the series has ever seen. And then, of course, there are The Companions. Three of the very best and most memorable characters the series has seen. And That's from Dan. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Dan.
4: Um, And testament to that is how Sarah Jane and Joe Grant came back into the Sarah Jane adventures. Completely believable that they've had lives that continued from where they left that era and then carried on. I mean, particularly Joe. um, And you couldn't
0: have done that with any of the prior companions. You couldn't.
4: You couldn't at all, no.
0: And you probably couldn't have done that with any of the ones that came afterwards either. Possibly Ian and Barbara. But Yeah, yeah Ian and Barbara, the, the two exceptions that prove the rule, I think. Yes. Well, I think that's it then on our John Pertwee. We've been going for quite a while again. This podcast is really starting to make a mockery now of my claim at the start that we're going to talk for 60 minutes. <laughs>
4: yeah. if, you, if you take out the silences from when Lee finishes talking... <laughs>
0: You probably do come down to it now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, I tell you what, next time I think we should go back to the very start and do a podcast on season one. Ooh, Everybody up for that? Oh yes. Yeah. oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, next time we'll be talking about season one then. Uh, but until then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>